really nice to be here with you all. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of people out tonight, the holidays, you know. And it was interesting because um, James has asked me to come here for many years, actually, and I couldn't because I'm a therapist in San Francisco and I often see clients. Um, and and just this last year, I changed my practice. So I stopped working on Thursday nights, and and when I did, I really thought of this group. I thought, oh, I'll be able to come to James's group sometime. And then here I was sitting in this traffic. <laughs> I was thinking, <laughs> look at how much I wanted to come do this, <laughs> and where it's got me. <laughs> and. Uh, I'd really like to dedicate this evening to James, actually. I really uh, feel this tremendous love, fondness, appreciation for James. He was one of my first teachers in Vipassana. Uh, he's been a, a mentor in many ways and a, and a good friend. And so I'd really like to offer this talk um, in his honor and appreciation for James. And so I thought I would start with a quote that he used often, especially in the early years. I don't know if he still uses it so much, but you, you may have heard it if you've been around James a while. It says, until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves also. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, from the commitment. Raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no one could have dreamed would have come their way. And then there's a little couplet that's associated with this from Goethe. He says, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And so I'd like to speak to you tonight. I'd like to reflect with you about a quality uh, in practice and in life, the quality of commitment. And I've been reflecting on this, on this quality, on commitment itself for a while now. I've been reflecting on it both in terms of practice and also personally. And it's been very easy to reflect on it personally um, because I got married recently. And so uh, I did made a formal commitment in a very ceremonial way, which I'll talk about a bit. And I'll talk about both the form and the commitment and the impact of making that kind of commitment. And I, I think it's relevant here for me to talk about it, especially because it was a, a quote, it was, it was actually, I was going to say it's a, it was a Zen wedding, but really it was an interfaith Buddhist wedding. It was a Zen Vipassana wedding. So my, this is, my wife has been a Zen student for many, many years, and I've been a Vipassana student for many years. So um, 
we had Reb Anderson, who's the former abbot at Zen Center and senior Dharma teacher now, and Jack Cornfield Marius. And if you know Reb, he's just a, he's a really, he's a Zen master. You know, he's very straight ahead. He's not making jokes particularly or, and then there's Jack who's flowery and kidding around and it was it was a beautiful wedding. I'll, I'll say some more later about it. Um, so as I've been thinking about it, reflecting on this quality of commitment and commitment in practice, here's a few of the ideas that have come forth for me. I was thinking about, well, what what do we commit to in Buddhism? What do we commit to in this practice of mindfulness? And why do we commit? What happens when we commit? And the first commitment, as I see it, is the commitment to being right here, right now. And so, as part of making that commitment, and this is something, this is a little piece that I like to encourage people when they're listening to a talk, when they're reflecting in this way, which is to consider it practice. And we're not given a lot of instructions about how to practice so much in interaction, so I'd like to give you a little bit of instruction. And the instruction that I like to give when I'm giving a talk is to put about 70% of your attention on your body. So feel your body right now as you're listening to me. And, and let your, let, don't make it a formal practice, make it an informal practice in the sense that um, you can keep your eyes open, you can see me, you can hear me, but that you're also really paying attention to yourself as you're paying attention to me. But mostly we do about 90% on who we're listening to and maybe 10% for ourselves. So I like to reverse it and just notice what that's like to keep looking, listening, and paying attention to your body, sensing it or feeling it. And let that be your practice. Let the reflection not just simply be a mental reflection, but also include your heart, the emotional reflection, and also include your body, the felt sense of being here, of the words, of your reactions, whatever they might be. So that, and then in that way you're also experimenting or exploring this idea of the commitment to be here right now, which is our practice. And so being here, being present, being awake, being mindful, being open to things as they are, fully. And it's especially in a situation like this, which is more um, a sense of a communication or communion in a certain way. Um, the awareness is very open. You're open to what I'm saying. You're open to your reactions to what I'm saying. You're open to the sights and sounds. You're open to um, your body, the feelings, the sensations. Uh, the, it's perceptions and inner sense is how the Buddha put it when he talked about mindfulness of the body. I really like that line. The body with its um, perceptions and inner sense. So that you're, the presence is very immediate. The mindfulness is very uh, direct at this moment. 
And this is the commitment we make in this practice. And it's the commitment we practice in our formal sitting. So that's what we do. We make a commitment to be here, be awake, be mindful of what's happening as it's happening. And we may use the breath as a place of balance or anchor, but really we're open to experience as it is. We're not trying to control it. We're not trying to manipulate it. What we're doing, as I see as we commit to being here, is letting the phenomena of our lives, the phenomena of existence as it displays itself here, awaken us. And it will awaken us if we're mindful and present with it. If we're lost, we usually don't get so awake. If we, if we don't practice, it's actually hard to wake up. Very few people wake up without practicing. So we make this commitment to be present, body, heart, mind, and all that, all that that entails, which is really all of existence. Because it's everything we feel, everything we uh, know, everything we see, everything we hear, all our reactions, and all the place beyond that knows it all the knowing factor itself, awareness itself. And when we first come, we first make this commitment, it's actually based usually on belief. We hear that there's this good thing, or helpful thing, or stress-reducing thing or cool thing called mindfulness. And so we think, okay, I mean, it sounds good. We, I'm going to try it. And we, so we, it's based on that we've heard that it's good. And even the Buddha, he put it that way. He said, um, there is a wonderful way, there is a most wonderful way, monks and nuns, to overcome suffering. And this is the practice of mindfulness. And so the first commitment to even try is based on belief. And as we practice, our belief begins to shift. The commitment deepens through what I would now call faith, actually seeing, oh, that this practice works. That we begin to see as we stay present and aware and awake and here and now, we begin to see that there's a freedom there, that's a kindness there. There is the possibility for living our lives differently than we've known, differently than we've been trained originally. So staying still, awake, present, we learn to do this with all the vicissitudes of life. With all the ups and downs, with all the difficulties. Actually, I was... Um, Speaking with a woman a while ago who came to my group, this is a great, uh, a great example of mindfulness in action. She, uh, her daughter is the same age as my daughter. I have a 16-year-old daughter, and um, and I'd known her. Our daughters had been in school together when they were really little, and I hadn't seen her for years. And she showed up in my sitting group one night, and she came afterwards, and we're talking. How's your daughter? How's my daughter? 
she said, oh, my daughter, I had the hardest thing. I said, she said, thank goodness I have the practice. So a couple years ago, her daughter was 14. She said, my daughter came home. She takes the bus home from school. And she got home and she's talking about this guy she met on the bus. And she's saying, I'm going to go down the hill and meet him at a coffee shop. And he was really neat and a nice guy and this and that. And the mother's listening and the guy sounds pretty interesting, an interesting guy. And she's listening. Finally, she's kind of getting it. She says, how old is this guy? And the 14-year-old daughter said, oh, he's 29. And the mother said to the daughter, just, she, said, she said, just like this, I'm having a really big reaction right now. <laughs> I'm going to go sit for a minute or two, and then I want to talk to you. And she said, she went in the other room, and she sat with her reaction. And she sat with it, and it didn't go away. But then when she went to speak from her daughter, she wasn't just caught in the reaction. She wasn't just entangled in the reaction. She could speak from a place of some equanimity. And she could say to her daughter, I got, I'm really scared you're going to go be with a 29-year-old guy, and that, this is why, da 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 And I don't want you to. And the daughter said, okay. But it was really from her coming from a place of not just reacting, or not just having to um, be at the mercy of her reaction. And I was really impressed. I, I don't know that I would have had the wherewithal to say, I'm having a reaction, I'm going to go sit for a minute. I mean, I don't know if it's... Monica's mother did it. Pardon? I wish Monica's mother had done it. <laughs> so our commitment is to open to the vicissitudes, to the difficulties, to our suffering. This is our commitment in this practice. Doesn't mean not also to open to our joy, and the beauty, but, all, but really at the bottom line is, is the capacity, the willingness, and the commitment to be present for what's difficult. The second quality that I thought about in terms of commitment is the commitment to compassion. That that's an important part of our practice that it's a commitment to the practice of non-harming, the practice of the precepts. And really, as it opens up or unfolds, the commitment to compassion or to non-harming is really the commitment to the truth of non-separation. It's the commitment to one another. And I, I saw a movie last week that was done by one of the members of our Sangha. She's on the board at um, Spirit Rock, Barbara Sonborn. Anybody see this movie? It was, it's not really showing yet. It will show on PBS. It's called Regret to Inform. And it was such a powerful movie. Um, she, she lost her husband in the Vietnam War. She was 24 when he died. And uh, 20 years after that, on the day he died, she woke up and realized she had to go to Vietnam and she had to make a movie about women who'd lost their husbands in Vietnam. And it's a very powerful movie and I encourage all of you to see it. Um, but bring a lot of tissues, 
mean, it, it really, it, it, I mean, I wept through the whole movie and I had to hold back really, really sobbing. And I was, it, it was so, it's so powerful to see the truth of suffering and to not have, have it, um, she didn't hold back at all. And she said she didn't hold back on purpose. And what she did was interview American women who'd lost their husbands in Vietnam and Vietnamese women who'd lost their husbands in the American war, as they put it. And I mean, so many pieces touched me. But I'll just say the, the first one, when she just talked about her husband and being 24 and their love, which had started when she was 14. They had met when she was 14. They were sweethearts, she said, at 14. And I'm watching my daughter have her first love now. She's been with this boy, seeing this boy about six, seven months. And you can see they're really having their first love. And it's beautiful. And it's so innocent. And it's so sweet. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be 14 and with your love to 24 and then have them killed. When somebody asked her about her anger towards the Vietnamese, she said she never had any anger towards the Vietnamese. She said she hated our government. That was her first thought when they came and told her was, I hate this government for doing this. And she said it took her 25 years to let go of that. And it, it's such a, I'm, I'm talking about a little now because of what's going on right now in terms of Iraq and, and this, you know, is it a war? It's a military action. You know, I don't even know the right words to say what's happening. But what I feel like is most painful is that we don't get to see what's happening, that it's hidden from us, that if we see it, then it can have its effect on us then it can really touch us, then, then we'll do something. But the, I, I just don't believe the American people will do anything as long as you don't see the blood, as long as you don't see the bodies or the pain or the suffering. It's in being committed to seeing the suffering that compassion arises, that seeing our interconnectedness comes naturally. So in the Mahayana tradition, uh, this is part of the vow, the bodhisattva vow, the commitment to compassion. And Reb Anderson talks about it this way, and he talks about it as a vow. And he talks about vow as practice. He says, I can make a vow which for me is the same as practicing zazen. It's the same as meditating. And I think that's important for us, especially in the Vipassana community, where we put so much emphasis on meditation itself. Um, I think there are a whole palette of other practices that are going to start to um, emerge in, in our practice that we need. The practice, vow practice, intention practice. And I could go in a whole nother direction. I like to talk about having a, a palette of practices. Um, he says, the vow will not be to meet each person completely by my own willpower. 
I will not make that vow. I will vow to trust that all sentient beings meet in my life as my life. I will witness the arrival of all things as my life. That's my vow. What will your vow be? Do you want to commit yourself to the way of the Buddha, the way that all sentient beings practice together? You know, often we talk about it as interconnectedness. I think it, that I don't actually like that word. It, it sounds so mechanical, like we're putting things together. It's just the way I hear it in my mind. When it's really seeing the oneness is the word that I like these days, the, the unity of being, whether it's being there or being here, that there are just these beings, and we're all part of that. Mm. So there's the commitment to mindfulness, to being present and awake. There's the commitment to compassion, to non-harming, uh, to the practice of non-separation, that we're here together. And then there's ultimately the commitment to liberation, to realization, to awakening, to understanding. The commitment to awakening to the deepest truth that human beings can know. And I think of this as fully understanding what this is and who we are in essence. The Buddha said, the gift of truth is the most precious gift and the taste of truth is the sweetest taste and the love of truth is the greatest love. I think it's important not to lose sight of liberation in our practice. To lose sight of full awakening the possibility of what it is to be a human being. And I, I like to reflect on that because it really supports me in my practice. It supports me in um, reflecting on how am I practicing. When I really think about, okay, I want to I get enlightened. You know, let's, let's go for it, the whole banana. Then it really makes me think about how, what am I doing in my life to support that? What am I doing in my formal practice? What am I doing in my informal practices? How am I living each day? There's a beautiful reflection that the Buddha gives. It's actually in a, a sutta. I couldn't decide whether to give this talk or the reflection talk, but I'll mix a little bit in because I love to talk about this. But he has 10 reflections that he gives to the monks and nuns. It's in the Dasa Dhamma Sutta. And the reflections are um, a support for practice and for awakening. And one of the things that I like about it is he gives the reflections and then he says, this must be reflected on again and again, over and over again, in order to live the holy life. And one of the pieces that is very close to my heart these days is, how do we live the holy life as lay people? And I like to steal from the monastics. 
uh, I, you know, when I, w I used to be a musician, and uh, and the and the word would be uh, the phrase we'd say is steal from the best. And so the monastics, this is what they've been doing. I've been quote living the holy life, focusing on liberation, on awakening, on realization. And what they've done is they've since the time of the Buddha and onward, created all these forms and structures that help support that, that help nourish it. And we can, we can steal them, we can use them, and we can adjust them for ourselves. And so the Dasadama Sutta, one of the reflections that the Buddha gives, he says, how do I spend my nights and days? This must be reflected upon again and again by one who has gone forth to lead the holy life. Take any piece of the Dharma and reflect on it. it. And your reflection needs to be grounded in mindfulness and being present fully, body and heart and mind, and then bringing up the reflection and see what comes. How do you spend your days and nights? Is this how you want to spend your days and nights? And it's not about being critical of yourself. It's about supporting your practice. Because we all spend our days and nights in some ways that we could maybe spend them a little better or a little more helpfully. Or maybe not changing what you do, but being more present and awake while you're doing it. If you're watching TV, can you practice while you're watching TV? It's a very difficult practice, but it can be done. I, I kid you not, I'll give you a little clue here. When you're watching TV, Start to be aware of the space around the TV as you're watching TV. Don't simply focus on the TV. Or sense your body as you're watching TV. Don't get totally entangled in the TV. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy the show, but you can practice while you're watching TV. Again, it's a very advanced practice. Very few people can do it. So, <laughs> But you can try, you can, you can play with it. And that's an important quality in practice. How do you infuse your life with practice so that you can wake up? And really one of these reflections from the Buddha, the first one I think of is the reflection on commitment. The first reflection is, I, I am now changed into a different mode of life from that of a lay person. This must be reflected upon again and again by one who has gone, gone forth. So if we, if we um, kind of sculpt this to fit our needs as lay people, so I have now changed into a different mode of life than I lived previously. Because now we've taken refuge. We've become maybe, maybe Buddhist. You don't even have to become a Buddhist but that we want to live a spiritual life, or a life of wakefulness, or a life of wisdom and compassion. That we've made that choice. Now we get to look at, well, what's our commitment? How are we living our commitment to that life? And that's an important reflection, not for criticism, but to help us, to help us um, tune, adjust, uh, harmonize our lives so that we can wake up. These are so great. He says the second one, he says, this is the reflection. This is great for us. My life depends on others. 
I mean, what a simple reflection, and what a beautiful reflection. My life depends on others. I don't know if any of you were in San Francisco last week during the blackout, but for those of us who were, we knew immediately that our life depends on others. I mean, it was not an idea, it was not abstract. We were not blinded by the comfort that we usually have. Somebody's providing these lights. It's not just that there's lights. I mean, you know, there are people behind these lights. Somebody's providing this building. There are people behind this building. It's all of us together are, are providing this world for one another right now. You know, if the garbage people stop picking up the garbage for one week, we know how dependent we are on others. This is a very important reflection, especially here in this country, in America. We're so, we have, we're so deluded with the idea of being individuals and of we're doing it, you know? And it's really propagated in our society, this idea. And it's so not true. It doesn't matter how rich you are or what you have, your life is dependent on others. So, commitment to mindfulness, to compassion, to waking up fully. <clears throat> now, commitment's an interesting word. I, I like to at least try to get a sense of what I'm talking about specifically. So I look words up, I looked up commit. Now, commitment's an interesting word. I, I like to at least try to get a sense of what I'm talking about specifically. So I look words up. I looked up commit. And the Latin, uh, etymologically, it simply means to put together, to commit, to put together. That's where it came from. And then some of the definitions are to uh, pledge oneself, to commit in that way, to join, to connect to send together. And commitment is the state of being bound emotionally or intellectually to an ideal or a course of action. So there's really a, I think the right word is cleaving. That when we really commit to what we care about, what we love, what's important to us, it's the separation begins to go away between what we love and who we are. To put together is the origin of the word, remember. That we start to really become what we commit to. And this is when uh, belief, which turns into faith, turns into just being. That we become what we love through our commitment. That the practice uh, imbues itself in us. It, it's a, it's a, an alignment that goes right to the core, right through uh, our body and heart and mind as we let the uh, commitment permeate us through our practice and through our cleaving to our practice in that way. 
and it has many wonderful effects. One of the wonderful pieces you may notice is it gives a wonderful meaning to life when we commit to our ideals, to what we care about and to what we love. When we move closer and are not separate from what's important to us. Stephen Batchelor talks about it this way in a book called Buddhism Without Beliefs. He says, in this changing, ambiguous world, is anything worthy of total commitment? It's a good question. It's a valid question. He says, Dharma practice starts not with a belief in a transcendent reality or God or somebody out there who's going to make it all out okay, but through embracing the anguish experienced in an uncertain world. That's our commitment to suffering. A purpose may be no more than a set of images and words, but we can still be totally committed to it. Such resolve entails aspiration, appreciation, and conviction. I aspire to awaken. I appreciate its value. I'm convinced it's possible. This is a focused act that encompasses the whole person, the whole being. Aspiration is as much a bodily longing as an intellectual desire. Appreciation is much a passion as a preference. And conviction is much an intuition as a rational conclusion. Irrespective of the purpose to which we are committed, when such feelings are aroused, life is infused with meaning. Beautiful language to describe commitment. I love this, that uh, aspiration is as much a bodily longing as an intellectual desire. That appreciation is much a passion as a preference. And conviction is much an intuition as a rational conclusion. We can't really describe the totality when we give ourselves fully. And he's attempting to in this way. And the rewards are, are uh, infinite. That life actually makes some sense. That we see it's good to be here with all the difficulties, with all the pain, with all the craziness, with the Iraqi action and the pain of that and the helplessness or the fury. That it's still good to be here and to be alive. Uh, I was just reading Suzuki Roshi. There was a, there was a, some kind of conference, a Suzuki Roshi conference. It's a new thing these days. They just had their first one. And one of the lines that I heard that I liked the best was that he, he used to say to his students, just to be alive is enough. It's a very powerful line. Just to be alive is enough. Just this moment is enough. <coughs> Because that's all there is, is just this moment. There isn't anything else. So that's a little about how I've been thinking about commitment in terms of practice. And I'd, I'd like to say a little bit about marriage, because it's been very interesting for me to get married, make a formal commitment in that way. i I've been married before. I kind of never thought I would get married again. Uh, and didn't really want to for a long time. 
and I've been in this wonderful relationship for many years now. And uh, my wife wanted to get married, and I was, I was like, well, why do we have to get married? And uh, one of the things I got to see was that there was a whole, um, there was a certain kind of clinging that was happening here for me to a certain identity. Like, oh, I'm someone who doesn't get married. I've been married. I don't want to get married. I'm not going to get married. Okay? Some other people may know this identity <laughs> here. And, uh, and what was interesting was at a certain point, that identity fell away. Actually, I'll tell you when that identity fell away. We, we were doing some couples counseling around this. And what I got to see was there was a certain kind of pain left from my previous marriage. And, when I, and that I didn't want to feel, basically. And actually, as I allowed myself to feel the pain, the whole identity fell away. And this wonderful feeling came of like, oh, of course I'll marry you. Why wouldn't I marry this woman, is what came. It was like I was free of that identity. So, you know, we talk a lot about clinging and freedom and identification. It's not just an abstract idea. It's actually usually very personal in that sense for each of us, how we identify. And to have um, one's identity let go is such a relief. At least it, it was for me. And so for a number of weeks I was just I just felt great. I just it was totally in love, and like it was like we just met again, and we'd had this wonderful romance. Especially in the beginning, I'd met my wife at Tassahara. She'd been a, a a monk at Tassahara, and we'd had a great romance. Where there's no phone at Tassahara, basically, and so we're four hours apart. And we wrote letters back and forth every day in the mail. I'd get a letter, and she'd get a letter, and and the. Um, the powers that be at Tessa Howard were really great at supporting our romance. They let me come down a lot and let her come up. And Anyhow, it felt like that again for a while. And so I, I, we, I was teaching at Santa Sabina, uh, the old students' retreat, and not this last year, the year before. And so I proposed in the monastery. I thought it would be appropriate since we, we met in a monastery. and. So I proposed and she accepted. And then a few weeks after that, my old identity came back. That was really, I, I have to include that a little bit. That was pretty interesting. I was like, oh my God, what have I done? I'm getting married. It was pretty funny. And, um, and what, what's so interesting about making this commitment and then living the commitment was the impact it's had on me because it started having an impact, I'd say about four, four or five months before we actually got married. I started to feel something happening with her and I, and it was down here, it was down around the belly. It was like, it was like a stream or something that you couldn't see, but something was actually happening, that the commitment was having an impact on us. And I couldn't, I couldn't describe it exactly, I couldn't say what it was, but I could feel it. It's like there was some way we were getting closer, beyond what we'd known. And we'd, I felt very close to her. And it was quite startling to see um, that we, we use our will to make the commitment, but then something beyond us happens. And the, mar 
the marriage, the ceremony itself, the formal commitment was pretty pretty interesting because it was it was it was really like this. It was like Jack opened and welcomed and uh, you know made everybody feel comfortable and talked about marriage, and then Reb Anderson did the formal Zen ceremony, which is really how you get married in a Zen Buddhist wedding. And so they ring some bells and offer some incense, and then they chant the Heart Sutra, which is the Prajnaparamita, the wisdom beyond wisdom. No nose, no eyes, no ears, no mind, no body. I mean, it's, it's really the, the chanting of emptiness and fullness. And, and so everybody chanted that, all our relatives, we had it for everybody. It was quite, quite wonderful that way. And then here's what Reb said. Here's the formal marriage part. He said, in a Buddhist wedding, we are married mind to mind, body to body, nature to nature, true nature to true nature. And so you give up your small selves and take refuge in each other. And to truly take refuge in each other means you take refuge in all things. This is to live together and practice together. That's the marriage ceremony, that we take refuge in one another. Mind to mind, body to body, nature to nature, true nature to true nature. And then the other formal part is that you recite the precepts kind of a Zen form of the precepts. So you take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and there's three ways that you do that. And then you recite what's called the three pure precepts, which is basically do all good, uh, avoid all evil, save all beings. I mean, just that is it's a beautiful practice. You could make that your whole practice. Do all good, avoid all evil, save all beings. And then you recite um, the ten prohibitory precepts, five of which we know very well here, not to kill, not to steal, not to misuse your sexuality, not to lie, not to intoxicate the uh, mind. Actually, in the Zen tradition, they say, not to intoxicate the mind or body of self or others. I really, it was interesting. And we did this in... Um, call-and-answer style. Reb would say one, we'd say one. That's the only one I kind of goofed on. It was interesting. Not to intoxicate mind or body of self or others. And then there's five more in the Mahayana tradition. Not to slander, not to praise self at the expense of others, not to be possessive of anything, not to harbor ill will, and not to abuse the three treasures, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. It's a beautiful ceremony. It was beautiful. The ceremony was beautiful because the commitment was both personal and impersonal. That we committed to one another, but really what we were committing to was the practice to Buddha and Dharma and Sangha. And that is our commitment. Mm. When I was um, training to teach at one point, um, at our teacher training, there was a couple who came and visited us and talked about their experience. And they'd been um, in the formal Sangha. He'd been a monk for 15 years, and she had been a nun for 10 years. 
then somehow they crossed paths in the monastery and there was some energy between the two of them. And so they were, they didn't do anything because they were, you know, they, they lived their vows, but they wanted to explore relationships. So they had to leave the monastery, which is, you may or may not know, is you disrobe to leave the monastery. So they disrobed and met outside and got together, together a number of years. Uh, I can't remember her name. His name was, he still went by his Sangha name, Kitty Saro. And they'd been out of the monastery about four years when I met them. And I was really curious about how was it for them, huh? Because I think of relationship as really one of the edges of practice for us here in the West. And uh, one of the real um, new developments in practice. And so I said to Kitty Sarah, I said, well, how is it for you? How is it to practice and be in relationship? And he was beautiful. He said, it's easy. He said, it's like having two people under one robe. Isn't that a beautiful image for how to practice? And I really think of that a lot now in my commitment and practice with my wife. And I'm not only mindful of my breath and my body and my heart and my mind, but actually my robe is bigger. I'm also mindful of her breath and her body and her heart and her mind. And of course, then the robe actually gets much bigger. My daughter's in that robe and then everybody can be in that robe. It gets to be a very big robe that we can wear in this practice. There was one piece that I didn't get to say in my marriage, and I'd like to say it here now. It's a quote from Wendell Berry. It's a little long, I won't read all of it, but I, I think it really sums up the commitment in terms of marriage, but it, it's a correlate to our commitment to practice, to awakening, to living a mindful life of wisdom and compassion. So let me read it to you and I'll do a little commentary on it. He says, the meaning of marriage begins in the giving of words. We cannot join ourselves to one another without giving our word, our pledge. Remember, commitment meant to pledge. And this must be an unconditional giving. I like to think of that as a wholehearted giving. For in joining ourselves to one another, we join ourselves to the unknown. We can join one another only by joining the unknown. This is a very important piece in marriage and in practice. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know where this practice is going to take us. Whatever our idea of awakening is, that's not what awakening is. Have you ever noticed that whatever your idea of anything is, that's not what it is? I mean, it may, the idea may fit, but the direct experience is something much more alive, immediate, and mysterious. Even a breath. You know, we, we do a lot of uh, uh, MOB, mindfulness of breathing, here in this practice. And one of the things I love to do when I'm on retreat, and as my mind gets a little calm and I'm staying with the breath and I've been staying with it a while, at a certain point, I just say to myself, Eugene, you don't know what a breath is. And then feel that experience that I've been calling a breath, that I've been conceptualizing and naming as a breath. Because that experience is not my thought. It's not my idea. It's not even the word breath. 
It's something much more mysterious than that. So to commit to this practice, or to anything, to really cleave, to really come very close to awakening, to life, to a moment, is to come close to the mystery of what's here. He says, marriage rests upon the immutable givens that compose it, words, bodies, characters, histories, places. Some wishes cannot succeed. Some victories cannot be won. Some loneliness is incorrigible. But there is relief and freedom in knowing what is real. These givens come to us out of the perennial reality of the world, like the terrain we live on. One does not care for the ground to make it a different place or make it perfect, but to make it inhabitable and make it better. To flee from its realities is only to arrive at them unprepared. So he says, first of all, what we know. It's not going to go exactly the way we want. Some things won't succeed. It's not going to take away our pain to get married, to be with someone. But there's a relief and a freedom in knowing what is real. That the words, bodies, characters, histories, and places are unique to each person. That we don't want to flee from these realities. Because to flee from them, as he puts it, is to only arrive at them unprepared. But to actually open to the reality of this being, and that being, and this being. And what it is for beings to be together whether it's in marriage, or as Sangha, or in this whole world. Because we know what happens when beings are afraid to actually sit with one another, look at one another, talk to one another. Iraq happens, or any of the tragedies, any of the wars that happen, any of the hatred that happens in this country or every country in the world. He says, no one can be solely in charge. Everybody already know that part? Whether it's about marriage or life or practice. What you alone think it ought to be, it's not going to be. What you alone think you want it, where you alone think you want it to go, it is not going to go. It is going where the two of you and marriage, time, life, history, and the world take it. You do not know the road. You have committed yourself to a way. And it's the same in practice. We don't know where it's going to go, or how it's going to go, or what's going to present itself here in this life. We've committed ourselves to a way. I think that's about enough for now. I'm going to, I'll read you one last poem. Maybe I haven't even read any poems yet, but it's a poem about love. Seems like it's, it's appropriate to read a love poem here. It's the poem that uh, we put on our invitation for our wedding. This is from Neruda. He says, I do not love you as if you were salt rose or topaz or the arrow of carnations that fire shoots off. 
I love you as certain dark things are to be loved in secret between the shadow and the soul. I love you as the plant that never blooms but carries itself in itself the light of hidden flowers. Thanks to your love, a certain solid fragrance risen from the earth lives darkly in my body. I love you without knowing how or when or from where. I love you straightforwardly without complexity or pride. So I love you because I know no other way than this, where I does not exist, nor you. So close that your hand on my chest is my hand. So close that your eyes close as I fall asleep. Let's sit for a minute. May the merit of our practice here tonight be a benefit to all beings in all directions. May all beings, including ourselves, be happy and peaceful. May all beings, including ourselves, be free from suffering. May all beings, including ourselves, awaken. Thank you all for your attention. Uh, I hope you all have a sane and lovely holiday. And uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.